Well, good morning. How are we this morning? Everybody have a good week? I bet you didn't have as good a week as me. My name is Matt Tolander. I'm the spiritual formation pastor here at Midtown. Here's how my week went. The Atlanta Braves swept the New York Mets in three straight comeback victories. The Texas Longhorns baseball team came from behind last night against Stanford. Jason Isbell released an album this week. I went to a show on Friday night. It is a great week uh, to be me. And I hope, that you had a, I hope that you had a great week as well, although maybe none of us had as great a week as Baby Gronk, because um, he went to LSU and got rizzed up by Livy. And y'all are just giving me these blanks. See, I knew I shouldn't have gone for the Gen Z humor when all the college students are away for the summer. So I'll get back to saying uh, my usual thing, which is like theological words that you don't understand instead of <laughs> internet slang. I think I'll be a little bit more understandable this morning. We are jumping back this morning as I kick over my drink. We are jumping back this morning into a series that we have sort of ducked in and out of over the last few months through this long section in the Gospel of John, which is called the Upper Room Discourse, or sometimes called the Farewell Discourse. This is a conversation that happens around the Passover meal on the night uh, that Jesus is betrayed, the night before he will be crucified. He has this meal and he has this long, long conversation with his disciples and they cover a lot of ground because it's his last teaching to them before he is going to go to the cross. And so he gives them the new commandment. He says, as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. He tells them that he is going to be going away, that he has to leave, but that it would actually be good for them if he goes away, because if he goes away, he will send the Holy Spirit to empower them, to be with them, and to um, lead and guide and direct them on the mission that Jesus has given them to do. And he also tells them As you carry out this mission, which I am sending you on, just as the Father has sent me, I'm now sending you, and as you carry out this mission, you are going to face resistance. You will face resistance from the enemy, and you will face resistance from the world, and it will be hard, and there will be suffering, and there will be persecution, and all kinds of trials. He says, in this world, you will face suffering, but take heart, for I have overcome the world, which brings us now... uh, to our text this morning. So I'd like to invite you to stand, please, if you're able, uh, for the reading of our teaching text. After Jesus had said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. These are the very words of God. Please be seated. So we're going to look at these five verses this morning, the first five verses of what is often called the high priestly prayer, Um, although many scholars and commentators call this prayer 
the true Lord's Prayer, or just the Lord's Prayer, and you say, well, that's interesting. I thought the Lord's Prayer was the thing that we say like after the message and after communion altogether. And that's, that's true that we usually call that prayer the Lord's Prayer. It was the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples and by extension taught us to pray. But it's not a prayer that Jesus prays, not completely. Many of the things in that prayer certainly fall into alignment with Jesus' vision and intention um, and heart for God's kingdom. But Jesus never runs into the problem that you guys who also grew up in church ran into, where you're in a situation where all of a sudden you're in a group and you're going to say the Lord's Prayer, and you don't know whether the group is going to say trespasses or debts (laughs) or sins. And you just got to guess. I mean, when I was a kid, I learned debts, and then I showed up in Texas, and the first place in Texas, I got hit with trespasses and felt like a doofus. So, but Jesus never has that problem because Jesus never once has had to pray to God, forgive me, my sins. There are a handful of references to Jesus praying in the Gospels between like 15 and and 20. And in a few instances, we actually have the recorded text of what Jesus prayed. Sometimes they're short, sometimes they're a little longer. Like in in Matthew 25, he lifts lifts his eyes to heaven. He says, Father, I praise you because you've revealed or you've, you've, you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned and you've revealed them unto infants. This passage in John uh, 17 is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the scriptures. And it's this incredibly intimate moment between him and his father. And as we look into these five verses that we've just read, you'll see that there's one point of application. There's only one thing to do in response to these five verses. They put a fork in the road before us, and it's very plain just from reading them. Our only, only response, our only action in light of this text and in light of this word from God is to know God by knowing his son and thereby get eternal life. If you want eternal life, you have to know God, and if you want to know God, you have to know the son. And so this morning, we are going to talk about the glory of the Son, the authority of the Son, and the vitality of the Son. But first, Jesus, he opens this prayer. He says, the hour has come. The hour has come. The Upper Room Discourse starts in John chapter 13, verse 1, with these very same words. Jesus knew that his hour had come. Jesus had an appointed task. He had a mission. He had one climactic singular, purposeful goal, which motivated and directed his entire life. And that task was to be carried out at the appointed time. Multiple times in the Gospel of John, this hour is mentioned. In John 2, Jesus is at the wedding in Cana, and they run out of wine, and his mother Mary comes to him and asks him to do something about it, solve the wine problem. He tells her, my hour has not yet come. John recalls instances in John 7 and John 8 where, um, where people tried to arrest Jesus, but they were unsuccessful. And John says they couldn't get him because his hour had not yet come. It was not the appointed time. Until in John 12, when some Greeks are trying to meet with Jesus, and when the disciples let him know, Jesus says this. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. 
Now my soul is troubled. And of course it was, because Jesus knows exactly what is awaiting him in his life. He knows the task that's before him. He's had this hour set before him from the beginning. And so, of course, he says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. And then he prays, Father, glorify your name. And when he prays that, a voice answers him from heaven that everyone around hears. And the voice says, I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. And Jesus explains, this voice spoke for your benefit because now is the time for judgment on the world, for the prince of darkness to be driven out. And listen, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And so now the hour is fully here. Jesus goes before the Father. And from this prayer, we will look at the glory of the Son, the authority of the Son, and the vitality of the Son. So first, the glory of the Son. Jesus first and really only requested the Father in these five verses, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Now, Father's Day is next Sunday. And if any of y'all just write a Father's Day card to your dad that just says, glorify your son, and that's I'll just give it to him and film it and send me his reaction, the funniest one, I will give you a prize. So I've been thinking about this all week. Such an, it's such an audacious prayer. I mean, I don't think any of us talk to our dads this way. But Jesus has such an intimate connection with the Father. He asks so boldly, glorify your Son. Why? So that the Son may glorify you. John, the author of this account, he centralizes the glory of God more than the other Gospels. In John 1.14, he says, the Word became flesh, speaking of Jesus, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus repeatedly throughout the Gospel of John, he says, I don't glorify myself. I don't glorify myself. I glorify the Father, and the Father glorifies me. We get this glimpse into the interconnected exchange of glory and love and community within the Trinity of God. The Old Testament word for glory in the Hebrew language is kavod, which means weight. It means weight or like heaviness. And it signified honor and respect and like a gravitas. Like, have you ever been in a room and like a celebrity walked in or somebody really famous and you felt the vibe shift in the room? It's like all eyes on that person. Everything is different now. Hushed tones. That's like a tiny, tiny, tiny glimpse of what the glory of God is like. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek in the centuries before the time of Jesus, those translators used the Greek word doxa to translate kavod. And doxa, in the secular Greek language, it just meant reputation. And so it's the word used to translate kavod in the Greek translation of the Old Testament from uh, right before Jesus. And when it's used as a verb, it's translated glorify or praise. And so that's kind of the sense that we're used to. We understand what it means to glorify someone, to praise someone, to honor them, to lift them up, to make them uh, famous, to shine a spotlight on them. And we understand glorifying and praising from that perspective. But when we look to a couple different Old Testament passages, we get a different dimension 
of the glory. And the first is in Exodus 33 and 34. And we're not going to have these on the screen. You don't need to flip because I'm going to be moving fast. Um, But in Exodus 33 and 34, Moses asked God, he says, show me your glory. I want to see it. And God says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. So Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I'll make my goodness pass in front of you. So you see, God's glory is not a thing. It's not an attribute. It's an action. God's glory is something that God does. Specifically, it's an act of self-disclosure. It's when God shows himself to someone, shows them a glimpse of his nature. Glory is how you describe that revelation. And so God reveals his glory to Moses. He makes his goodness pass in front of him. And when he does, he says this to Moses. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, full of steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for a thousand generations, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, and yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. See, God is a just judge. He doesn't clear the guilty, but his justice is established in his compassion and in his grace and in his loyal love. And in his truth. And so while sin can dominate even a family for three or four generations, God's steadfast love can keep them for a thousand generations. And that's what he reveals to Moses in this moment, that there is more love and compassion and grace in God than there is sin in you or even in your entire family going back generations. And so in Exodus 33 and 34, we see that God's glory is a revelation of his character. It's a revelation of his goodness. And we see another aspect of God's glory in Isaiah 6, which is another sort of paradigmatic um, Old Testament text for looking at this idea. Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 is witness to a vision of this manifestation of God's holiness in in God's throne room. And he says he saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and angels are circling him. They're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And confronted with this manifestation and this revelation of the holiness of God, which is called his glory, the power of that revelation does something to Isaiah. And he cries out and he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king. So glory, God's glory, what we learn from Isaiah's vision, especially, and others in the Hebrew Bible, God's glory, if you have an encounter with the glory of God, you do not walk away unaffected or unchanged. You can't. It's impossible. His glory is so heavy. It's so weighty. His revelation is so powerful. His his character is so holy that to witness it the way that uh, that these folks did, you cannot walk away from it the same. So theologian Theodorus Christian Vriesen, he says that the glory of God is is the, the radiant power of God's being. It's the external manifestation of his holiness. It's the revelation of his power and his character. And so when the nation was in exile and they were captive in a foreign land and Isaiah prophesied to them about their deliverance, he told them to wait and hope for God's glory. 
Isaiah 45. He says, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. Isaiah 60 verse 1, arise, shine, your light has come for the glory of the Lord shines on you. And so in Isaiah and in the prophets, the glory of God begins to be associated, yes, with judgment, but also with deliverance of God's people. And so when John, the author of our text this morning, goes back and he reads Isaiah, he realizes something. And in John 12, 41, he says, Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus Christ and he was speaking about him. When Isaiah was in the throne room of God with angels circling and singing holy, holy, holy and, had, and was, had the glory of God manifested to him in his reality, he saw the glory of Christ, John said. And that's a claim that would have been incredibly hard to hear for John's Jewish readers because God says on multiple occasions in the book of Isaiah, I will not share my glory with another. So here's what this means. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When God glorifies the Son, he doesn't share his glory with another. He glorifies himself. Because the glory of the Son is the glory of the Father, and the glory of the Father is the glory of the Son. If the Son is glorified, the Father is glorified. If the Father is glorified, the Son is glorified. When, when Jesus learns that Lazarus has fallen sick, he says, this sickness will not end in death. He knows that Lazarus is going to die, and he's going to raise him from the dead. He says, this sickness will not end in death. Why? He says, it's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So it is to God the Father's glory that Jesus, his Son, be glorified. John understood that Jesus was not just a rabbi, that he was not just a religious reformer, he was not just a moral teacher, he was not just a carpenter, he was not just the Messiah of Israel. Jesus was all of those things. But before he was any of those things, he was the Word and the only begotten Son of God. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Everything was made through him, and without him nothing was made which has been made, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus said, I and the Father are one. In verse 4, Jesus says, I've brought you glory on earth. He said, Father, I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began. So in his pre-incarnate state, prior to taking on flesh, Jesus shared in the fullness of the glory of the Trinity. But in the incarnation, Jesus set aside his right to that glory. He opened up his hand and he gave it up. As St. Paul wrote, he didn't consider equality with God, the glory of God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, making himself nothing. And in his incarnation, he humbled himself before the Father, becoming obedient to the work that God had put 
before him to do. And now, in this moment in John 17, that work is coming to completion, and Jesus is saying, Father, I gave up my right to be glorified for the sake of humanity, to reveal you to them and to show them how to love you, to show them how to obey you, to show them how to glorify you, and I did it perfectly. Now give me my glory back. And in the next verse, Jesus gives, him, gives the reason for this bold request, such a bold request for God the Father to glorify the Son. Jesus says in verse 2, For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. So this is the authority of the Son. Talked about the glory of the Son. This is the authority of the Son. In the Gospel of John, the authority of Christ means two things. First, it means that Jesus has the authority to reveal God. Jesus has the authority to reveal God. And second, Jesus has the authority to give eternal life to all people. That's what he says here. He says, you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. So let's look at these. First, Jesus has the authority to reveal God. Here's, um, here's some Theology 101 stuff. God is in charge of how we know about God. Okay? God is in charge of how we know about God. We don't figure God out. We don't unravel the mystery, okay? God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His judgments are inscrutable and his paths are beyond tracing out. He's the creator and we are creatures. We know nothing about God at all except that which God reveals to us. Now, if you study the Bible or if you study theology academically, you'll have to take classes in an area, called, uh, an area of study called exegesis. Y'all heard this word, exegesis? It comes from a Greek word. It just means interpretation. So you have to take classes in interpreting. You have to learn how to interpret the text. Someone who's engaged in the process of digging into the text and interpreting it and teaching it to someone else is called an exegete. And in John 1.18, John uses that label and he applies it to Jesus. He says this, no one has ever seen God. That is quite the claim. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So literally, Jesus exegetes God. Jesus interprets God to us. And that privilege belongs to Christ alone. Jesus is God's appointed interpreter. He discloses the mystery. He reveals God, and his revelation of God is utterly sufficient. That's why Paul says in, in Colossians 1 that he's the image of the invisible God. It's why the author of, the, of the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1 that God, in the past, God spoke to us through the prophets and spoke to us in many ways, but in the final days, he's spoken to us in his Son, because the Son is the exact representation of his likeness, the exact representation of his likeness and the radiance of his glory. So the Bible contains the words of God, but Jesus Christ is the word of God. 
The words of the Bible derive their power from God through the Holy Spirit to bear witness to the word of God. And Jesus spoke of it this way too in John 5. He said to the religious experts, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life, but the scriptures testify to me. And you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He says in John, or he doesn't say this, Peter says this. And in John 6, when, when all the disciples are turning around and they're abandoning Jesus, and he, he turns to some and he says, are you going to go too? Are you going to leave me too? What does Peter say? He says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus has the sole authority as God's interpreter because the scriptures testify to him. He is the embodiment of life. He has the words of eternal life. He has the authority to give eternal life to all people. See, when Jesus made God known to us, it was for God's glory, but it was for our sake. Because if Jesus didn't, if Jesus did not reveal God to us, then we would be without something which all of us desperately, desperately need. God gave Jesus the authority to give us eternal life. Now, what exactly is eternal life, besides a Christianese phrase that all of us have heard many, many times. What is eternal life? Jesus defines it in verse 3 of our text. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. So this is the vitality of the Son. The vitality of the Son. I grew up in church. Um, how many of y'all grew up in church, just by show of hands? Okay, quite a lot of us. All right, youth group kids. How many former youth group kids still recovering? Okay. Um, I had a lot of very positive experiences growing up in church, so this is not just like a hate on, on church thing. But, you know, growing up in church, there's always the awkward stuff, too, that we get to talk about. It's just like growing up in our families. And, uh, you know, in church growing up, I was taught to ask people this question. And the question is, if you were to die tonight, what would you say to get God to let you into heaven? Why should God let you in? Have y'all been taught to ask that question to people? Anybody else heard that? No. I've never felt so. Thanks, man. One person. That's the first time that, like, no hands have gone up. That, that never backfires. I've done this, like, a lot of times. It's the only time that that's not worked. Well, okay. Well, I was taught to ask this question. Trying, trying to share the gospel with people. If you were to die tonight, why should God let you into heaven? And look, it's not the worst question, but I, you know, even at that time would, was going like, it seems like, and I wouldn't have phrased it this way because I, I, um, I was much younger, but like it seems like that question sort of trivializes human life, doesn't it? Like the, like the thing that really matters is what happens after you die, and we're going to accelerate the death date up to tonight for the sake of urgency, but also because um, if, you're really, if your whole focus is what happens to you after you die, then what happens in the in-between is kind of a toss-up. And it can either be like, oh, well, I know what's going to happen to me after I die, so it doesn't matter, or I know what's going to happen to me after I die, but I don't know how to bring it into the present, and so all I have is like, moralism and going through the motions and kind of just doing the Christian thing, you know, if you were to die tonight, how would you be sure that God would let you into heaven? And I was always wanting to know, okay, like, what if I wake up tomorrow? What, is, what does the gospel mean for me if I wake up tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day? 
What does it mean to bring the gospel to bear and to bring Christ to bear on my day-to-day life and not just on my hope for what happens after I die? Because the Bible, the Bible does not tri- trivialize human life. It doesn't. Your human life on this earth matters very, very much to God. It matters to Jesus. And it matters to John, in fact. This is life. Life is such is a dominant, dominant theme in John's gospel. He has so much to say about the issue of life, what you do with it, how you live it, where you get it. In John 20, 31, he says the whole purpose of his writing, writing this book, he says, all of this was written down so that you may believe Jesus is the Son of God and by believing have life in his name. Of all the references to life in the gospels, half are in the book of John. And if you specify eternal life, then John has twice as many references uh, as the other three combined, and that's not counting uh, his other writings. So John is going to say things like this, in him, in Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of men. Jesus said, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst, but it will well up within them to eternal life. He said, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. And he says, this is eternal life life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. See, people people define Christianity all kinds of different ways. Um, you define it culturally, you know, oh, well, you're, you know, you're, well, you're from the South. Yes, you're probably, you know, Christian-ish, Christian enough, culturally speaking, or institutionally, you know, I'm a member of this church or a member of this organization, so, you know, kind of a Christian by association, but Christian by what I'm involved in institutionally, or um, even increasingly in our country, um, people define being a Christian politically. Uh, the most recent study that I saw, which is from last year, indicated that 43% of evangelical Christians in the United States of America believe that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. That's nearly half. So increasingly, um, people are defining their Christianity or their evangelical Christianity by, along political lines. But some people define Christianity propositionally. You know, it's, it's primarily about what you believe. And some people kind of define it intellectually. You know, it's like, well, I'm very interested in Jesus, and that's kind of the main way that my religious uh, you know, action sort of gets channeled is into the study. I want to study the text and I want to learn all the things. But Jesus does not define Christianity culturally, institutionally, politically, propositionally, or intellectually. Jesus defines it vitally. Are you eternally alive or not? That's it. Are you eternally alive or not? Do you have eternal life or not? Do you know the only true God and Jesus whom he sent or not? Because that's what it means to be eternally alive, is to know God and to know the Son. And the knowledge that Jesus is talking about here is not objective knowledge, it's subjective knowledge. It's not intellectual knowledge, it's experiential knowledge, because it's relational knowledge. It's relational knowledge. It's not objective knowledge, it's subjective knowledge. Let me explain the difference by telling you the story, the coolest thing that ever happened to me. When I was in high school, I had the opportunity to meet 
and over the course of three days have multiple conversations with Quentin Tarantino. And he was my hero because I was like a 14-year-old boy. So of course he was. Um, and before you ask, I'm very comfortable being a stereotype. And we found out that Quentin Tarantino was shooting a movie right by the church where we grew up. And so me and my friends went, we sat on this dumpster outside the gas station where they were filming. We sat there for hours and nothing was happening because they were filming inside. So we just see this huge crew in a parking lot. We sit there all afternoon and well after it got dark until finally people start pouring out of this gas station and people start clearing out. And we see this figure walking toward us in like a Kid Rock style straw cowboy hat in the dark. And here's me at this moment. Me at this precise moment is, I've seen all the movies multiple, multiple times. I remember when I watched Reservoir Dogs for the first time, it finished and I just immediately restarted it. And none of this is a recommendation to go and watch any of these movies, okay? But, <laughs> but like, I was a 14 year old boy. This was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. So all the movies, multiple times, knew it all, knew his whole story, working at the video store, everything, you know, there's a lot of feet in the things. I knew, I knew everything there was to know that I could know about Quentin Tarantino. And in the moment that he came walking toward me in this parking lot wearing the Kid Rock straw cowboy hat and pulled it off, and I realized it was him, and before I could stop myself, I called out, Quentin, and my voice cracked, and he looked up, and we made eye contact. And in that moment, I realized I don't know him at all. I had objective knowledge. But all that objective knowledge did me no good when I was face to face with the person and nervous from head to toe, knees shaking and voice cracking, and please, can we get a picture? Many of y'all know Jesus the way that I knew Quentin Tarantino. You know him objectively, but you don't know him subjectively. You know about him intellectually, you know about him propositionally, but you don't know him personally and relationally. And if that's you, then here's what will happen if you carry that on what will happen is that the spiritual realities that we claim and that we believe in as Christians and that we understand that we're supposed to draw upon these spiritual realities for resources, for living life, those spiritual realities, if you only know Jesus intellectually and propositionally, but not personally and not experientially and not relationally, those realities will always seem to you more like abstractions than realities you won't be able to draw on them. And so here's what it looks like. You know that Jesus taught about the possibility and the power of forgiveness. And you know that he even said, if you don't forgive others from your heart, then God the Father will not forgive you. And you don't want to be a bitter person carrying a grudge around all the time, and yet you just can't let that person off the hook. And so you carry it and carry it and carry it because you don't know how to draw upon the spiritual resource of mercy to give it away. You know that Jesus said, I am with you always, and you wish you had some kind of sense or like awareness of God's presence, but you never sense it, and you're frustrated, and you're starting to wonder whether he's even there. 
and you don't know how to draw on spiritual resources to persevere through suffering and trials and to come out on the other side stronger and wiser and humbler and more mature on the other side of the pain. You know that Jesus said, don't worry about what you eat or drink or what your body looks like or what you'll wear. And you think, man, that sounds really nice. That sounds like a nice, nice dream. Because like anxiety has dominated my relationship to my body, to food, to clothes for as long as I can remember. And you don't know how to draw upon spiritual resources to help with these problems. And many of the problems that we face require all kinds of support. They require medical intervention. They require trained experts. But they also require a spiritual engagement. In one of John's other books in the New Testament, Jesus, uh, he says this. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Now, Christians use this verse for evangelism. You know, we say to people, he stands at the door of your heart and he knocks. Open it up and receive him. In context, Jesus is talking to a church. He's talking to Christians. And this is a picture of what it looks like to know Jesus objectively, but not subjectively. You know him. You're Christians. You're a church. You're a community. Everything is organized around him and the propositions about him. And he's on the outside of the door wondering why he can't get in. And he's saying, if you'd only let me in, then I would come in and eat with you and you with me. In other words, we would be the tightest of friends, the closest of friends. We would have intimate fellowship. But that's not what's happening. So they know him objectively and not subjectively. And it's frustrating. It's frustrating to live like that for for years and years. It's frustrating to only know Jesus intellectually, but not personally. To only know him propositionally, but not know him actually relationally, because it's, it's, it's knowing the truth, but never being set free by it. And that's not what Jesus intends for any of us. And so here's the deal. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for you and who rose again for you, then you have eternal life. You have it. It is your possession. It is yours. It will not be taken away from you. It will never be taken away from you. But, and, if you never move from intellectual knowledge to relational knowledge, then you'll probably never enjoy having eternal life because you'll never experience it. And what you'll have is an if-I-died-tonight relationship with Christ and not an if-I-wake-up-tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day relationship with Christ. Jesus didn't come and die to give you life after death. He came to give you life to the full, starting now and lasting forever. And it only comes through having an interactive relationship with him right now. So here's application for us, us Christ-believing people who have eternal life but so often just choose to live at the level of knowing him intellectually and propositionally and not having a relationship that's intimate and interactive. Here's the application for us. Engage the relationship. Engage the relationship. Lean in. Pursue it. Connect with Jesus Connect with his body. Here's how we're trying to do, help you do this at Midtown right now. Every year, 
we do three different teaching series on spiritual practices because we want you to have a box full of tools for connecting with God and growing spiritually. We want you to have this, like a whole thing where you can go and go, what do I need right now? What would help me right now in life? What can I do in 15 minutes? We want you to have as, as many resources, as many skills, uh, spiritual skills and tools as possible um, to grow. And so we do a series three times a year on a spiritual practice so that you can implement it. We've done prayer, community. We just finished last week our Sabbath series. And practicing Sabbath would be a phenomenal, phenomenal way to start connecting with God on the more relational level. So lean into spiritual practices and start small. Don't try and do it all. You have freedom to work on one thing at a time. Set manageable goals. Give yourself grace. Tiny seeds become giant trees. Just be consistent and faithful and watch God give some growth. Connect with Jesus, but then also connect to his body. Connect here. You can't be all in with Jesus and be half in with his body. We are all united with him, and therefore, we are all united together. And so we need one another. We need one another's support. We need one another's gifts. We need one another's presence, one another's testimony. And so come to church. Come every week to church. I feel like such a, like a lame, like, come to church, please. More than two times a month, come to church. Join an MC. Have you joined an MC yet? Are you in community? Join an MC and, and plug in and be encouraged and process these practices that we're going through together. Join a service team and serve here on Sunday mornings. I've known, I've known Kari Chevalier, our, our children's director, for 13 years. I'd love to introduce you to her because I'm sure that she could use volunteers. We have set up teardown. We have a greeter team. We need people to plug in and serve. Jesus said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And so therefore, serving is a pathway to Christ-likeness. It's a pathway to fellowship with Jesus. And then lastly, when we launch discipleship huddles in the spring, sign up and get in a group with people who encourage you, support you, who you can be honest with and share with openly and receive grace and encouragement and support. I want to invite the band and, um, to come back up and the communion servers to start preparing. And um, as they do, let me just speak briefly. Um, because to this moment, I mostly just talked to the believers. But if you're here and you go, that's, that's for sure not me. I do not know the, the only true God. I do not know Jesus the Son. I'm not sure the only true God exists. I don't know if I want anything to do with Jesus. And so eternal life, as you define it, is not involved with me. If that's you, then glad you're here. I'm probably not going to change your mind this morning, but I know that you crave eternality. And I know that you crave substance. I know that inside you there is a part that longs for something that is forever and longs for something that only God can give. Maybe not the strongest part of you, but the truest part of you. And so whenever you get exhausted enough of trying to prove yourself to the world and to God and everyone else, Jesus invites you to come and find rest. And so if that's you this morning, you're like, I don't know him, but man, I'm exhausted and I want to find rest, come and talk to me in the back. And let's just have a couple moments of quiet reflection as the communion elements get dispersed.